Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Myrex Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hoffberg, and today's podcast is about Transgender Awareness Month, which is coming up in November. We are joined today by our guest, Dr. Shelby Scott. She graduated with a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Denver in 2016. And currently, she is working at the Denver VA as a women's mental health psychologist and also the VA's LGBT veteran care coordinator, where she serves as the point of contact for LGBT veterans who are seeking care and also helps educate VA staff around LGBT cultural competence and runs LGBT support group. So we're really excited to have you today, Shelby. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Adam. Great. Well, before we jump into the topic, again, transgender awareness, we'd like to just get to know you a little bit more and some of your work at the VA and also, you know, a little bit about what led you here and why you're passionate about this work. Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, I received my PhD from the University of Denver last year. And most of my research and clinical interests have really been focused on how to take interventions that were designed for heterosexual families or opposite sex couples and adapt them to meet the needs and be culturally sensitive to same sex couples. And so that is uh, what the focus of my dissertation was on in terms of kind of building some basic science research on same sex couples, their dynamics, what issues or challenges. Um, and strengths might be different for these families compared to heterosexual families. And from there, work to kind of develop some novel interventions for same-sex couples. And then following that work and beginning my career here at the Denver VA, um, I stepped into the role of LGBT veteran care coordinator. And within that role, have been really involved with developing some programming for our transgender veterans as well. So as you mentioned, um, I run some of our LGBT support groups, including our transgender support group, um, and have been involved in some programming to really honor and recognize um, the service of our transgender veterans as well. And that's really why we're here today, um, as in terms of why we're releasing this podcast on November 20th. Um, November 20th is Transgender Day of Remembrance. And this holiday is um, really sacred to the transgender community because it's an opportunity to recognize um, the dozens, the hundreds, um, the thousands of, of transgender people who have lost their lives to anti-transgender violence. Um, and so our hope with doing this podcast and releasing it on November 20th is that this one way to honor these individuals is to just bring awareness to this day as well as do our best in serving the transgender population and transgender veterans who seek their care with us. Thank you for that and for sharing in that space with us today as we honor the transgender folks who have lost their lives. There's really a lot of room to learn on this subject. And so before we get into some of the details, I'd really like to just kind of define some of these key terms so that we all get on the same page with what we're talking about and how we're talking about it. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what it means for someone to be transgender and some of the related terms around that. Absolutely. So transgender is basically an umbrella term that refers to when someone's gender identity differs in some way from their sex assigned at birth. So gender identity really refers to this innate 
psychological sense that each of us has um, in terms of whether we consider ourselves to be a woman, a man, um, a combination of both genders or neither gender. Um, Many people would even describe this as what your gender is in terms of your soul or your heart. It's often unconscious, but many of us, uh, but we all have a gender identity, and this usually develops between the ages of two and four. So if you were to ask a three-year-old, for example, um, are you a girl or a boy? As long as they're developing at kind of a normal rate, they'll be able to tell you. And so um, transgender refers to when your gender identity differs in from your biological sex. And so biological sex um, is usually determined as soon as we're born based on our genitalia. And so most people are assigned um, male or female at birth, um, but it's actually much more than that. It refers to things like chromosomes. Are you XX, XY? There's also other variations of chromosomes that some people don't know about, um, such as being XXY or XYY or just X. And even biological sex lies on a spectrum, too. So people can be intersex, for example, meaning that they're born with ambiguous genitalia or some different combination of both traditionally female and masculine markers of biological sex. And so, um, as I mentioned before, transgender refers to when your gender identity and your biological sex are mismatched in some way or they don't align perfectly. Um, And then for most people, they do align. And so for people whose gender identity and biological sex align, we would refer to that as cisgender, C-I-S gender. Um, And then underneath the term transgender, we also have some other specific terms that some people might identify with even more specifically. And those can can include terms like gender fluid or gender non-binary or agender, referring to whether people kind of um, identify with both ends of the spectrum or kind of move along that spectrum or actually don't identify with either sides of that spectrum. And so a big takeaway that I think is important is that all of these terms lie on a spectrum and are non-binary. Thanks for breaking that down for us, because I know oftentimes there is a lot of confusion around what these terms mean and how they're used. I'll have you expand on that a little bit more by telling us what is sexual orientation and how does that fit in to the mix? That's a great question. So sexual orientation refers to our patterns of romantic and sexual attraction. So for example, if someone is attracted to um, kind of the opposite end of the gender spectrum from what they identify as, that would be considered heterosexual. But people who are attracted to the same gender that they identify with would identify often as gay or lesbian. And then we also have terms like bisexual or pansexual, which refers to people whose patterns of attraction include being attracted to both genders or all genders. And then we also have terms like asexual, which refers to when people generally don't experience sexual attraction to either gender. That's also very helpful. And so one other uh, definition area I want to get into is one that's actually in the DSM listed as a diagnosis. And tell us, what is this concept of gender dysphoria? So gender dysphoria refers to the psychological distress or discomfort that some transgender people feel due to that incongruence between their gender identity and their sex assigned at birth. So what's really important um, about this term or this DSM diagnosis, gender dysphoria, is that 
we're focusing here on that discrepancy and the resultant feelings of dysphoria as opposed to pathologizing being transgender. So some transgender people experience gender dysphoria at some points in their life, um, but not all transgender people do. Often this, these feelings of dysphoria are in relation to wanting to rid themselves of some of their primary or secondary sex characteristics that cause them to have that feeling of dysphoria between their gender identity and their bodies. Um, other symptoms can include just having a strong desire to be the other gender or be treated as the other gender or just having that feeling of conviction and thoughts and desires um, that are typical of the gender that they want to identify with. And gender dysphoria um, was an important change from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5 because this replaced the diagnosis of gender identity disorder. And so again, this is really getting to this idea that being transgender is not pathological. Um, Again, indeed, many transgender people live psychologically healthy, normal, fulfilling lives. Um, But this does um, give us a way to acknowledge the distress that they might experience due to that incongruence between their gender identity and their biological sex, and then be able to provide appropriate mental health or medical interventions to reduce that dysphoria. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that and explained it as that incongruence that's creating distress rather than being transgender itself, which I understand maybe historically um, some things have been included in the DSM that maybe weren't or aren't currently looked at as disorder, as diagnoses. While we're on this historical context, can you tell us a little bit more about transgender veterans and the history of transgender veterans both serving in the military and how it relates to how the VA treats them and the care they can receive here. In terms of transgender people being able to serve openly within the U.S. military, um, there have been some recent developments in this area that are still kind of ongoing. So many of your listeners might be familiar with um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell and how that was a policy um, that was repealed in 2011, which made it um, capable for openly lesbian and gay service members to serve in the, in the U.S. military. Um, however, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, did not apply to then opening the doors to transgender service members serving openly. It was actually only in June of 2016 when the Department of Defense repealed the ban on current transgender service members. Um, and the plan at the time was to implement this um, this repeal of the ban over the course of one year, um, with the plan being that in June of 2017, that transgender service members could begin to be openly recruited. However, that has been delayed at this point, and there was a memorandum issued by President Trump um, in August of 2017 um, stating that the ban would be re-implemented. And so at this point, the Department of Defense has issued some, inter- has issued some interim guidance um, where they are going to study this issue more thoroughly and provide um, 
provide some feedback and results to President Trump in February of 2018. So at this point, the interim guidance says that transgender service members who are currently in the military can continue to serve. Um, It's still unclear, though, what changes might happen um, once they kind of issue their results. In terms of the VA, however, um, we have a directive that was issued in 2013 that clearly states that we serve all veterans that served. And so this directive, um, 2013-003, if you ever want to read it, it's really, um, it actually has a lot of great information in it. Um, but it clearly states that the VA will provide medical care in a respectful fashion to all transgender and intersex veterans. Excellent. And we're going to get into a little bit more what that care looks like, and especially in your role here at the Denver VA, what are some of the services we offer here locally. But I am glad that you highlighted the historical context because I think it helps us understand why it's important that, for example, we have a Transgender Awareness Month um, to help bring this issue into the open and talk about it a little bit more and help educate folks about the topic. Let's turn now to what we sort of know based on uh, demographics, on epidemiology, some of the research that we've done to understand transgender folks and some of the issues and challenges that they're facing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So let me first start with saying that this is an area that it can be hard to get some accurate prevalence rates because it involves people, transgender people disclosing their transgender status in these surveys and studies. And so this is an area that's really up and coming, and we're trying to get some more accurate statistics, you know, year by year. Some of our most current estimates come from a study that was released by the Williams Institute in 2016. Um, And they now estimate that 0.6% of U.S. adults identify as transgender, and this translates to about 1.4 million adults in the U.S. that identify as transgender. And I think it's worth noting that these estimates um, that came out in 2016 are double what the estimates were about a decade ago. So it seems like um, as these surveys are coming out each year that the prevalence rates have really been increasing. And so um, in terms of transgender veterans in particular, um, the Williams Institute um, issued um, a national study in 2014 where they estimate that over 15,000 transgender service members are currently serving in the U.S. military, and they place their estimates at over 134,000 transgender veterans currently residing in the United States. Another thing that I think is interesting to mention is that transgender people are overrepresented in the military and the veteran population compared to the civilian population. So there have been several studies that suggest that transgender people are about two to three times more likely to serve in the military. And then in terms of veterans who actually receive their care at the VA, um, the prevalence rates of transgender-related diagnoses like gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder are about five times higher than what we see in the civilian population. So that frames it really well for us. We can see that it is an important topic among veterans and that perhaps even more important than among civilians based on the prevalence rates within the military and veteran populations. So tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that 
they've faced. But also, I want to really flip that on its head and have you talk about some of the strengths and some of the resilience and ways that folks are harnessing the community and the support network within the LGBT community to build strength. I love that you frame that question that way, because I think we can so often talk about minoritized groups in a way that really focuses on deficits or challenges, um, and we can fail to recognize the other side of the coin, which is all the strength and the resilience um, that can come from these experiences as well. So I'll start with talking about some of the challenges first. So um, transgender veterans, transgender individuals um, do face pervasive systemic forces of stigma, and that is often really at the core of some of the different rates we tend to see in terms of mental health challenges or other disorders. And so um, these forms of stigma and prejudice range from things like daily slights and invalidations of their very identity as a transgender person to, of course, those more overt forms of discrimination, rejection, and violence. And the accumulation of these experiences and the impact that they have on transgender people psychologically is something that we might refer to as minority stress, meaning it's just this additional stress that is constant in many of these individuals' lives that people who are cisgender don't face. And so to give you just some statistics on what this looks like, um, there's evidence to suggest that nearly half of all transgender people have been sexually assaulted at some point in their lives. And nearly half of all transgender people report that they have been verbally harassed in just the last year due to being transgender. So these experiences are really, really uh, rampant and prevalent and are extremely high. Additionally, nearly one in 10 um, transgender people report that they have been physically attacked in just the last year. And one in 10 transgender people also report that they've been physically assaulted in just the past year. So these are often experiences that are repeated, um, are not just isolated, um, and are very prevalent throughout the transgender population. The other thing that I'll mention that I think is really important to emphasize, too, is that transgender women of color in particular tend to face some additional challenges in terms of violence. So transgender people as a whole face higher rates of homicide. Um, and about, in some research suggests that about 80% of all homicides of transgender people are towards transgender women of color. Yeah, those are just uh, some startling and uncomfortable statistics, to be perfectly frank. Obviously, you don't want violence against anyone, but to see rates that high, it is very uh, troubling. Just astronomically high. And one could see that that might lend itself to additional stress, sort of a cyclical compounding issue where uh, could you talk a little bit about how that might uh, play out? Yes, absolutely. And so because of these additional experiences of stress or minority stress that transgender people face, we do tend to see higher rates of things like depression, PTSD, as well as suicidality. So the more that people experience violence, discrimination, and prejudice, the more likely they are to internalize some of these experiences or be limited in terms of access to resources and support, which can lead to the development of some of these more serious disorders. Um, transgender people in particular do have 
some of the highest rates of suicidality across almost all demographics. Um, there have been several studies that have replicated that the prevalence rates of suicide attempts really hover around 40%. And and that is just, again, astronomically high. This is about 10 times higher than what we see in just kind of the general population. So this is an area that is a particular concern to the transgender population that I think is so important to address. And I'm glad that we're having a podcast about that to think about that. Absolutely. Um, and like you said, those those numbers are jarring, but they're, I, I think in this context, very important to discuss because we are laying the stage for why some of the work you're doing is so important. And I just also want to clarify when you said 40%, we're thinking that is across the lifetime. That, yes. Uh, that about 40% of transgender identifying individuals have also reported that they attempted suicide at some point in their life. That's right. Lifetime prevalence rates. Great. Thank you. So, um, again, we already touched on this. Sometimes it's so much on the challenges and so much on these really startling and even sometimes sensational statistics. But what we want to know is what are some of the strengths and how can we use those strengths to build effective care and support networks for the transgender community? Can you tell us a little bit about that side of the coin? Absolutely. And so um, as we were just talking about before, whenever minoritized groups face these additional challenges, I think we have to recognize the resilience and strength that comes from living through these challenges. So there's a lot of wisdom and strength in this population. Um, many transgender people risk enormous losses in their lives for living their truths, including possibly losing fam their family members, friends, employment, housing discrimination, by choosing to live their lives in authentic ways. So I think there are ways to really capitalize um, in clinical settings the courage that comes out of living your authentic life. Um, there's also strength in the transgender community in terms of finding ways to support one another and being resourceful in building these communities where um, transgender people in the LGBT community can support and lift one another up. Um, the other thing that kind of stands out for me is that, and I think this is a great question also to ask the transgender population in particular to kind of speak from their own truths as well, but is that transgender people really challenge our ideas about what it means to be a man or a woman, um, which leads us to challenge our underlying stereotypes about traditional gender roles. Um, and I think that's just good for everybody to have, um, to have these kind of notions of what it means to be man, a man or a woman, male or female challenge because they can keep us limited in our ideas of how to live our own lives as well. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Adam Hofberg, and I want to let you know about a program available through the Rocky Mountain Myrick that we are really excited to tell you about. Why Worry Alone? The Suicide Risk Management Consultation Program provides free one-on-one -on -one consultation for any provider, both in the community and throughout the VA, who serves veterans at risk for suicide. For more information on this program and related resources, you can visit the Rocky Mountain Myrick website at www.myrec.va.gov slash visn19 slash consult. To initiate a consult or email us with any questions, you can reach us at srmconsult at va.gov. Hashtag never worry alone.
So we're going to turn now to some of the work you do inside the VA and also just some of the care that the VA offers in general. So let's start with more generally, what are some of the VA services available to transgender veterans? So the VA directive that I mentioned earlier really outlines uh, the medical care that is available to eligible transgender and intersex veterans who receive their care in the VA. So this includes services, um, including mental health care, which I can go into a little bit more detail in a minute, um, as well as hormone therapy, um, preoperative evaluations for um, gender-confirming surgeries or what some people might call sex reassignment surgery. I tend to prefer using the term gender-confirming surgery because I think we're really confirming people's sex as opposed to changing it or reassigning it. Um, but you will hear that term sometimes, sex reassignment surgery. And I want to just pause yes. there as a plug. We're going to come back to some of the language stuff in a little bit about how we talk about these topics in a respectful way. So exactly. hold that thought. Okay, great. So yes, we provide mental health care, we provide hormone therapy, um, we provide preoperative evaluations for gender-confirming surgeries, and we also provide the medically necessary care post-operatively. So after a veteran has received um, a gender-confirming surgery, the VA can provide some of that post-operative care. The VA, though, does not provide, um, at this point, does not provide gender-confirming surgery itself or pay for that. So transgender veterans who are seeking um, procedures like mastectomies or um, orchiectomies or vaginoplasties, um, those are not currently offered um, through the VA or funded through the VA. But if they do receive those services through other means, we can provide some of the preoperative evaluations or postoperative care. That's really helpful to get a lay of the land of what's available. And with our focus today being on the mental health side of some of the care here, uh, can you go into that a little bit more for us? Sure. So before we even get into talking about clinical competence, once you're meeting with a transgender veteran, I think it's important to think about barriers that prevent transgender veterans from even coming into our services. Um, because if we can't um, communicate clearly that we're a safe place for transgender people to receive care, then all of these other clinical guidelines don't really matter very much. One thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is that transgender people may be distrusting of care providers um, due to having experiences in the past where being transgender has been pathologized. So these experiences can be even further complicated by the fact that there's this kind of inherent power differential when, when a transgender veteran comes in to receive care for therapy, just based on that therapist-client relationship. And the thing about that relationship is um, this power differential might make some transgender veterans less likely to openly discuss their health care because they might have concerns that you know their transgender status might be used against them or invalidated. So a few tips on how clinicians um, might kind of work against this is to clearly communicate through symbols of safety and their language that they're providing a safe and affirming space for transgender people to discuss their experiences. And this can be done in a lot of different ways. So at the Denver VA, um, for example, we have partnered with the MIREC to um, get some funding to to purchase these rainbow lanyards that say VA serves all who serves. I know that Adam, you're actually wearing one and I'm wearing one during this interview. Always. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, walking around the VA since we've been really promoting getting these lanyards out, we now have, I would estimate 
um, at least over 100 VA staff members that are wearing these. And I've anecdotally had dozens of veterans come up to me and just say that they've noticed that, whether they're transgender or lesbian, gay or bisexual, and that that is really um, really important to them and it communicates to them that the VA is really welcoming them to receive care here. And you're calling that a symbol of safety? Is that what we're yes, referring yes. to this? Okay, that's very fascinating. Yeah, this idea that before you even have to, that you don't even have to ask. I am already communicating through the clothes I'm wearing or through posters in my office that I am an affirming space for your identity and we can talk about it as much as it relates to your care or not. This is an open space to talk about being transgender or LGBT, and I'm interested in listening. And we can do that um, even before any words come out of our mouth. Other things that clinicians can do kind of early in their work with transgender people is to in- is to think about using inclusive language. So this can come in many different forms, including um, literally on the forms we use. So if we have forms that ask Um, veterans to identify their gender, making sure that we have options that are not just male, female. Um, This could be a write-in, gendered identity, just writing that in. Or if you do want to have a checklist, making sure you have male, female, transgender woman, transgender man. Um, You know, you could could keep going from there, but at least those. And then maybe even adding, you know, other or kind of a write-in option for veterans to really identify their gender themselves and not be limited to male or female. Yeah, that reminds me of a couple years back when we, um, a lot of our center does a lot of research and we do an intake form with demographics and it used to have a few options. It it wasn't just male, female, but it didn't have the full spectrum of options. As you mentioned, there's a lot of combinations here. I was really happy to see that they did update that form. And um, now that I'm thinking about it in a slightly different way, you know, we were doing that for research. But now I could see that that maybe was a symbol of safety for folks coming in to see that on that form, they did have the option to express themselves the way that they saw themselves. Absolutely. And to add on to that, um, we can also... we can also be really conscious as clinicians about the language we use when we start to talk with transgender veterans. And one thing that I can, that I think can be really important is to ask transgender veterans. You could, I think it's actually good practice to ask all veterans, but particularly when you're working with a veteran who is transgender um, is to ask for their preferred pronouns and their preferred name that they would like you to refer to them as, um, even if that's different from what's in their chart. That's another piece that actually is protected by that VA directive, is that transgender veterans will be referred to based on their preferred pronouns, um, regardless of what is in their chart. And so some ways that I go about doing that is, because I know if it's something that you're not used to doing when you're when you're meeting with other people, is just to kind of normalize it and even share your own preferred pronouns yourself. So if I'm meeting with um, a veteran, I might say something like, like after kind of nice to meet you and just kind of sitting down and talking and, and getting started, I might say, my preferred pronouns are she, hers, and her. What are your preferred pronouns? And just normalizing how it's not something I only ask transgender people or assume only transgender people need to share um, and just normalize it by kind of a, um, volunteering my own preferred pronouns first. And that, again, really can open the door to transgender people feeling like they are in a safe space and that their gender identity will be affirmed, whatever that is. Yeah, thanks for giving that example, because like you mentioned, uh, these aren't necessarily the easiest topics to open up. And so that's a nice segue to, to help then start the conversation. Um, as a sort of an aside with that, 
we can acknowledge that we all will probably make mistakes or have made mistakes about how to talk about gender with a person who identifies as transgender. Could you actually give us an example of how you might address um, how you respond if you make a mistake mm-hmm. in that context? Sure. And and I think what's important about this is just like you said, this happens to everybody. And we all make mistakes in our clinical work at some point. And um, this can be a particular opportunity where we want to be really sensitive in how we respond. If we ever do misgender someone or use um, the wrong pronoun or even use the wrong name. Um, and when that happens, um, I think the best advice is to really just own that you made a mistake without at the same time going overboard and making it about you. So what not to do, I think, is to go, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. And then kind of starting to explain why you misgendered that person or kind of what that mis- what was at the root of that mistake. Because then you can get into this awkward situation where the veteran is in trying to comfort you. My advice is really to just, in a sincere way, apologize, recognize, um, I'm sorry, I used the wrong pronoun, ma'am, you know, and just kind of say that. And then depending on your relationship with the veteran at the time and kind of the context, you can also open the door to if they want to process that at all any further. So I re- I apologize, ma'am. Um, I used the wrong pronoun. I'll work on, on getting that right next time. And if you, and then you could have a follow-up question of, is there anything that you'd like to talk about that? Would it be helpful to process that at all? And if the veteran says no, move on. If yes, then kind of, again, opening the door to owning that mistake that you made. Yeah, that's great. And like you said, not glossing over it, but not overly dwelling on it. It sounds like there's a nice balance there with your example. And I think veterans have different responses to when this happens. Um, Some veterans have shared with me, we had an LGBT veteran panel a few months ago, and there was a transgender veteran on that panel who really said, what matters to me is that we're all trying and she was just very open to the idea that pronouns can be difficult sometimes. And all she cares about is that people are really trying and, and acknowledging when they make mistakes. And then there are also some veterans who this is a very sensitive um, area for them because it is, it's such an invalidating experience when that happens. And that's why I think it really depends on – we really want to empower veterans to kind of decide where to take that conversation if that happens. Um, but really putting the onus on ourselves to, to try our best to get that right. Excellent. And you could see how that would be very empowering to acknowledge that and um, process it together. So, and I know I sidetracked us slightly. So just to take you back over to how to create a welcoming environment around and then getting into some of the actual services that we do offer here. The only other thing I would add before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts of care with transgender veterans is, again, this idea of putting the onus on ourselves as providers to educate ourselves. So one thing that anecdotally I've had several transgender veterans share with me that can be difficult for them is when they meet with providers who are very new to working with transgender veterans and ask them a lot of questions to just kind of get some of the basic education about what being transgender means. 
some transgender veterans might appreciate that, but they can also be this experience of, oh, I'm having to educate this other provider again. Oh, I'm having to educate this next provider again. And sometimes their transgender status might not even be the main focus of what they're working on. So I really encourage all the clinicians listening today to listen to podcasts like this. And then when we get to some resources later, you know, to just take some time to kind of educate ourselves. That way, when we meet with transgender veterans, we can really focus more on their individual experience. Excellent. Yeah, that's some great takeaways for the clinicians listening. So um, thanks. And we'll be sure to link out to some of these resources, including um, some of your published work that I meant to mention earlier that you touched on in the intro. Awesome. Um, and so the other thing I could talk about here then is clinical competence and once we're working with transgender veterans. And so the first thing I would mention here is that many transgender veterans seeking mental health care, maybe seeking care to things uh, for comorbid diagnoses like depression or PTSD, um, addressing suicidality. And in in those cases, it's really going to vary from patient to patient, kind of how much their transgender status is related to the care that you're doing. So for these cases, I think it's important for clinicians to kind of take some time as you would with any other identity, like race, age, socioeconomic status and just kind of consider that as one piece of a person's identity that way we don't kind of overly attribute you know these other disorders that someone may be wanting to work on to being transgender because that can be a mistake too and so like as an example if you're working with a transgender veteran um On PTSD, you might be doing one of the evidence-based treatments such as cognitive processing therapy. Um, For your listeners who aren't familiar with this, this is a a treatment that's based in cognitive behavioral therapy and really focuses on kind of addressing negative um, maladaptive thoughts that can keep people stuck in their recovery. And so to give an example, I've worked with transgender veterans before who might be working through military sexual trauma. And some of their negative automatic thoughts or stuck points um, might be related to being transgender. For example, um, the thought of, oh, it was my fault because they could tell I was more feminine or it must be my fault because I'm transgender or I should have done a better job at concealing this part of myself. And so there might be opportunities where... um, It's important to be open and create that affirmative space to talk about how being transgender relates to that veteran's PTSD while also remaining faithful to like the core elements of the treatment that you're doing. Yeah, that was a really interesting point you brought up how um, it's important to think about transgender status in the context of other mental health uh, diagnoses, but also not to over attribute it as the root of everything. Um, And I don't know if you wanted to say anything more about that or like, for example, you highlighted earlier that unfortunately um, rates of sexual assault and sexual abuse and military sexual trauma may be high among transgender veterans. So, you know, one could start to draw a connection between these two, but not necessarily for all, you know, if somebody lost their job or uh, other life stressors are affecting them, it may not always be related to their transgender status. So uh, that is a really important nuance. 
I think it's really important um, with every transgender veteran that you're working with to really take the time to understand how their transgender status may be attributing to or connected to any of the various um, different things that you might be working on, just as you would with other identities as well. And I think that can be a microaggression that some transgender veterans may experience when if they work with a clinician who overly attributes every kind of difficulty that they're going through to their transgender status. But at the same time, we don't want to ignore that either. We want it to be kind of a space where it can organically be talked about when it's relevant and we can be curious about that um, without kind of coming in and assuming that it means more or less than it means and really kind of, again, empowering veterans to talk about what that means for themselves. Mm -hmm. So we've touched on some mental health uh, related treatment and how that might look in the context with someone who is identifying as transgender, but more specifically around folks who are looking for treatment around gender dysphoria and, again, what used to be called gender identity disorder. Tell us a little bit about what that treatment looks like and how folks might uh, seek care for that. Well, there are some really great international standards that I want to mention before I kind of jump in because they can go into a lot of detail around that. These are called the WPATH standards. It stands for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, and they put out um, standards on just this exact question and kind of different levels of care. So to summarize these guidelines as much as I can... um, For veterans who are particularly seeking care to reduce their feelings of gender dysphoria, um, there's usually kind of this stepwise approach that veterans go through to reduce that dysphoria. And some veterans may go through all the stages and some may only go through some. So the first stage is usually focused on socially transitioning, meaning... um, thinking through how they might go about the nuts and bolts of transitioning to living as their gender identity, um, kind of the nuts and bolts of starting to dress and present as the gender that they identify with. And therapists might help um, these transgender veterans in a variety of different ways, ranging from just problem solving, really thinking through how to navigate some of the challenges that might come up around socially transitioning, um, including the coming out process, ideas about who to come out to and when, um, ideas about what, um, how to face challenges that might surface in different contexts like their work environment or their housing environment, providing some psychoeducation also on um, what being transgender is if, if for veterans who aren't quite as familiar with this, um, and just helping them start to think about that process and how to go about socially transitioning in as safe a, a way as possible. Um, for many, uh, for many transgender people, that might be all that they need to do in terms of reducing their feelings of gender dysphoria. Um, but there is a large percentage of transgender people who do, um, feel the need to undergo some medical interventions as well to alter their bodies in order to, again, reduce that discrepancy or incongruence. And so the order of those interventions typically involves, um, beginning cross-sex hormones um, in order to kind of develop some of the secondary sex characteristics of the sex that they identify with. So for transgender women, this often involves um, taking estrogen, um, which develops breasts, which might Uh, which reduces hair growth um, in terms of facial hair and kind of body hair. Um, For transgender men, this usually involves taking testosterone, which then leads to the development of um, 
of more muscle mass, of lowering their voice, can even change um, the facial structure to be more masculine and develop body hair and facial hair. Um, and usually before transgender people start cross-sex hormones, they the WPATH standards require there to be a letter of support from a mental health professional confirming their diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So there's some level of psychological evaluation that goes into that um, just to make sure that this is, um, you know, a persistent and consistent um, gender identity that this person is wanting to transition to. Um, and the reason that also is as well is just to make sure that people are consenting to treatment from a really informed space or a really informed place. After some transgender people uh, receive cross-sex hormones, they may then go on to pursue some or, or all kind of available gender-confirming surgeries, again, which in many of the medical literature is referred to as sex reassignment surgery. Um, I just tend to to find and, and hear from other transgender people that a more inclusive term would be gender confirming surgery. And this can include a variety of different surgeries um, that really do alter some of those primary sex characteristics to be more in line with the gender that they identify with. Most standards require that um, transgender people have been taking cross-sex hormones for a minimum of one year before pursuing um, these surgeries. Again, just because it, it is a more serious procedure to receive and again often involve additional letters of support and psychological evaluation to just make sure that um, these individuals have a confirmed gender dysphoria diagnosis um, and um, that they are in a place to make to to have informed consent with undergoing these procedures and the va can provide those not the surgeries not the the surgery but the other pieces yes exactly Yeah, thanks for breaking that down with us. Again, I think one of the goals and one of the things we're definitely doing here today is helping people become more culturally aware, culturally sensitive about what some of that care looks like so that they are uh, more comfortable and more informed. So one other area that I want to focus on, especially with our podcast, is what some of the suicide prevention care looks like for transgender veterans. Sure. Well, I think the best way to address suicide prevention, um, in addition to reducing all those barriers of care, really does come down to some of the same nuts and bolts of suicide prevention across all populations, which includes good assessment and good safety planning. Um, And so as with all veterans, we really should be asking about suicidal ideation and normalizing how this is a really common experience that many people have. For transgender people in particular, um, I think you can be mindful of a few additional risk factors. Um, One of those is whether or not that veteran is coming from an affirming environment. So kind of assessing their experience of having their transgender identity affirmed by people that they care about from their family, from their friends, um, from their work. Um, If they feel like they've been receiving messages that something is wrong with them or that their transgender identity is invalid, that can be a risk factor for suicidality. Um, And related to that, um, veterans who have been ostracized from their families, um, in addition to that, I think it's important to assess for 
veterans um, and their sense of belonging to some community or family environment. So again, because the risk, there are risks of transgender people being ostracized from their families of origin, um, and one of the biggest uh, risk factors for suicide is a lack of sense of belonging or like you are a burden to other people around you, that it can be important to assess for that. And if there is a lack of social support, helping veterans build that social support into their safety plans. That's a great uh, point. And I just wanted to segue to maybe talk about what some of that social support outside of VA healthcare, VA mental healthcare might look like. And just one comment, I remember um, we do a yearly event for Pride Fest each year, and it's kind of a way for the community to come together and folks to show support and acknowledgement and acceptance. And I wonder how all these um, things in the community sort of impact individuals' mental health as well. Yes, I think the LGBT community and community resources can be a really great place for transgender veterans and individuals in general to build these communities of support that might not just be kind of readily available. And so um, the Denver VA has had some really great success even in this last year of building some of these community partnerships. So, for example, this last year, the Denver VA marched in pride for the first time and we actually got to march at the very front of the pride parade um, in partnership with the american veterans for equal rights which is um, a national organization for lgbt veterans and they have local chapters throughout the united states so i really recommend that your listeners look into that um, also referred to as aver a-v-e-r um, and they have local chapters throughout the country where lgbt veterans can connect with one another Um, There are also, in most major cities, there are some form of an LGBT center or even more specifically a gender identity center. And so... So in Denver, we're really lucky that we actually have both. We have a general LGBT center, and we um, that's just often referred to as the center. And then we also have the Gender Identity Center, which really specializes in transgender uh, services. And so... um, In terms of VA care, at the Denver VA, we're really excited to offer a transgender support group, Um, and we have that group as well as a separate group that is more of our lesbian, gay, and bisexual group. And so we kind of switch these groups back and forth every three months, and it's a space where transgender veterans can um, build some of that community support with one another, as well as integrating some mental health coping skills, um, kind of wellness skills that are related to kind of coping with some of these additional challenges. So thanks for sharing some of the great resources and um, things going on here in Denver. Could you also touch on any of the VA resources for VA clinicians to access more generally? Sure. There are a lot of different resources for clinicians who want to learn more about transgender veteran care or also just to connect veterans to care as well. So every VA facility is now required to have an LGBT veteran care coordinator. And so I happen to be the coordinator at Denver, but every other facility has their own LGBT veteran care coordinator. Um, And 
um, you can access the list of these different veteran care coordinators through the LGBT SharePoint, which is another great resource. So there's a, a lesbian, gay, bisexual SharePoint, and then there's a transgender specific SharePoint that's available through the intranet in the in, in the VA system where you can get access to a host of different resources. Um, another great resource that I want to mention is there is this transgender interfacility e-consult. And what this is, is um, there are um, four different facilities that have broken down uh, the VA system into four different regions. And each region has their own team at one of the facilities in their region that provides really individualized consultation to any clinician that wants it. And all you do is when you go into the veterans chart that you're working with, you can go to inter-facility consult. So for example, um, in the Denver VA, the regional team that we use is at the Minneapolis VA, and you just click on inter-facility consult transgender e-consult and you can send your question to this team and they will read that veterans chart or review that veterans chart and provide really individual feedback on whatever it is that you're asking about such as how to do a psychological evaluation how to write a letter of support how to think about diagnosing gender dysphoria and they can provide you with some really specific feedback that is a fantastic resource but I do want to be clear that that's available to VA clinicians. Exactly. Is that correct? Yep, that's only within the VA system. And along with that, we also have you know TMS trainings, which I'm sure everyone is super excited about. I know we do a lot of TMS trainings, but I really do want to recommend some of these because they're they're not very long and they're very informative. And we have different TMS trainings on transgender as well as lesbian, gay, bisexual, same-sex couple, um, mental health care. And so there are a lot of different resources there too for clinicians who want to learn more. Great. And we'll definitely include those as well. Um, just expanding the net for folks who are listening who may be outside of the VA or just looking for more national resources more generally. Um, tell us a little bit uh, about what's out there. Well, as I mentioned before, there are a few clinical guidelines or standards that are really helpful, including the WPATH standards of care. APA also issued clinical guidelines in 2015 that are really helpful and break down different pieces of clinical care and how to be culturally competent with working with transgender veterans. Um, other resources include the Finway Institute, the Human Rights Campaign. Uh, we can provide um, links to all of those uh, with this podcast as well, and they can provide information on um, on LGBT cultural competence and how to build um, or how to create uh, symbols of safety and inclusive environments for individuals to receive care. And then there's also some hotlines that are important to mention too. Obviously, there's the Veterans Crisis Line, which um, many of your listeners are familiar with, but non-veterans can call or civilians can call as well. Um, and there's also um, a hotline, uh, the Trevor Project or the Trevor Lifeline, and they are uh, a suicide prevention crisis hotline that specializes in LGBT youth as well as young adults. But they will also, um, of course, answer and provide care to any person who calls and kind of get them connected to care too. And their number is one 488 Thanks for mentioning that. Um, great. So Shelby, I want to thank you again for taking time today and really helping illuminate us, help 
change the conversation a little bit on this topic and help us be more sensitive and culturally aware around um, some of the issues and strengths within the transgender veteran population. Do you have any closing thoughts or words of wisdom before we let you go today? (laughs) Well, I'll see what I can do. Um, I think that... The biggest takeaway I hope your listeners get from this podcast is that transgender veterans, you know, do deserve the best care anywhere um, and that we really can serve them well. Um, It's just really on us to take that little bit of extra time to educate ourselves on what transgender cultural competence means, just like your listeners are doing today. Um, These veterans have served their country honorably um, and have really sacrificed, you know, for our country in order for us to to have the country that we have and serve them as well as we can. And I also want your listeners to know that I'm available if they have any questions or uh, want to talk about these issues further. I'm also happy to get your listeners connected with their local LGBT veteran care coordinator or connected to some of these resources. Um, and I just really appreciate you having me today to talk about this really important topic. Um, and I hope that you and your listeners you know, got something from it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I know for sure I did. And um, again, thanks for highlighting Transgender Awareness Month. And thank everybody for listening to the Rocky Mountain Myrick Short Takes podcast. That'll be it for today. You can learn more about Dr. Scott and a lot of these resources we've been discussing today by clicking on the links accompanying the podcast. Be sure to give us feedback. Again, send us comments. Reach out to us if you want to chat further and let your colleagues know about this resource. Until next time, join us for more interviews on suicide prevention work and resilience.